But before we continue on, I want to give you all a moment just to reflect on, on this question before we start. Uh, what makes it difficult for you to form new habits or new patterns of living? What are some of the challenges to forming new patterns? Right? So I'll give you a moment to reflect on that. Uh, and if you're willing, go ahead and share with someone near you. And for those online, feel free to throw your thoughts on the online chat. All right, I'll give you a moment to do that. All right. Anyone want to throw out some, some thoughts, some reflections? What, what makes it difficult to start practicing a new pattern? What, what, makes, what are some challenges? Anyone? Old habits, right? Hard to break old habits. Distractions, right? Being distracted from trying new, a new way of living. Peer pressure, all right? Making it harder for you to actually try a new pattern. Children. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> Be, like, being willing to fail, right? So the possibility of failure kind of keeps us from that. Inertia, right? It's definitely hard to move in a direction you're not going in. Um, yeah, I think just when something becomes ingrained, you know, when something becomes embedded in us, it's just so hard to be able to break out of that, to consider a, a new pattern. And I think one, one pattern I'm still stuck in um, is typing two spaces after a period. All right, does anyone else still do that? Okay, so you're my people. Okay, so we've kind of uh, dated ourselves a little bit. <laughs> um, that, so that's what I was trained growing up, right? When I was taking typewriting, which that also dates me, but when I was taking typewriting class, that was like ingrained in our heads and in our hands, just two spaces after each period. So when I started discovering this thing about one space after a period, I was like, what is this, right? I mean, how does that even work? <laughs> and I still can't make the shift, right? It's just so ingrained in me. Um, but sometimes it helps when I actually see other text, and it kind of reminds me, oh, yeah, that's a thing. Maybe I should try. Um, but it takes reminders. It takes intention. And so this morning, as we continue in the season of Easter, we continue to reflect on and be reminded of the new way of life that Jesus is inviting us into. And so in our lectionary text, the disciples are they're attempting to, to reintegrate, to readjust to their lives after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we see them struggling to find their way, what it means for them to form a new way of life that Jesus had been training them for. And so the question I want to explore in this season of Easter and resurrection is, is how are we forming new patterns and a new way of life that Jesus is inviting us to? And as we move towards this new way of life, what do we need to be reminded of? And we'll see with the disciples and Peter specifically that they have a constant need for reminders as they navigate this life after resurrection. And so we start in verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach. But the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. 
Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so if you remember, back when Jesus first met these disciples, they were in these same fishing boats. They were on this task of fishing, completely unaware of who Jesus was, even back then. They had also just spent an entire night fishing and catching nothing. And then when Jesus asks them to throw their nets back into the sea, they catch a massive amount of fish. And so three years later, this is almost a rerun of that first episode. And one of the observations that stands out to me here is that They've gone back to fishing, which seems like a step backwards, right? They've just spent the last three years walking with and learning from Jesus. They were invited to reimagine their calling and their vocation and to embody God's love in the context of oppression. And they've just experienced both the devastating death and loss of Jesus and the joyful resurrection and return. And so it seems like they would be ready to continue the work of justice and restoration that Jesus had been preparing them to do. But instead, Peter and the disciples respond by going back to fishing. They return to their default patterns in the midst of confusion and uncertainty. And I, I can't blame them, right, for going back to what they knew best or what they found comfort in. Because all of us have a tendency to go back to our default patterns as a coping mechanism. And so Jesus has to show up yet again to disrupt them out of their default patterns. In verse 9, when they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And so we've seen this episode before too, right? Where Jesus is breaking bread and giving it to the disciples. It's an echo of the Eucharist meal that they shared right before Jesus was crucified. And so the breaking of bread, the massive catch of fish, these were all reminders that brought awareness of who Jesus is and what he was inviting them into. And for us, as we form patterns toward a new way of life, the sacraments are what disrupt our default patterns so that we can be reminded and more aware of the presence of Christ in and around us. Because a sacrament is something that's an outer, visible sign of an inward, invisible grace. Whether it's the Eucharist or baptism or marriage, or even the church, we're in need of these physical and tangible reminders to reset and bring us out of our old patterns. So this past week, um, I went through this detox diet just to help reset my eating habits. Uh, And the last time I did one of these uh, was a few years back. And I remember back then, the night before, as part of my preparation, 
I did a full tox. <laughs> so I was just loading my systems with toxins, right? I just, in the form of pork rinds and pounds of crawfish. Like, that was my preparation, uh, which I don't think that's how the process works. But this time, at least, I had a little more discipline not to take that approach. And over the last couple of years, um, just, you know, with this, the stress and disorientation of the pandemic, you know, of, of transitions here at Vox, uh, I definitely resorted to a lot of stress snacking. Like, I made a lot of visits to our pantry at all hours of the day and night. I mean, it was just constant. And so this past week, after the first couple of days of only drinking shakes, it was brutal, right? But by that third day, I've never tasted a better salad in my life. Just the sweet, bright flavors of spinach, avocado, peppers. And the process reset my palate, reset my taste buds to crave actually fresh and natural foods. And having this structured order of drinking shakes and having a schedule of what and when to eat helped me to reset the internal cravings and the subconscious snacking that I just defaulted to. And for us, what, what are the default patterns that we revert to that keep us from being aware of Christ's presence in and around us? This is how Rachel Held Evans reflects on communion and the sacraments. She says, something about communion triggers our memory and helps us see things as they really are. Something about communion opens our eyes to Jesus at the table. This is the purpose of the sacraments, of the church, to help us see, to point to the bread and wine, the orchards and the food pantries, the post-funeral potlucks and the post-communion dance parties, and say, pay attention. This stuff matters. These things are holy. Enter one another's joy, one another's family, one another's messes, one another's suppers. And for us, maybe a practice we can try is to just intentionally make space for what the sacraments might trigger in our memories. Even this morning, in a little bit, as we approach the Eucharist table and, and remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, how does the Eucharist disrupt our need for self-achievement, for self-protection, or even the rhythm of liturgy each Sunday? How might that disrupt our own isolation and our tendency towards an individualistic faith? And so how might we be open to have our default patterns disrupted and reset in order to be more fully aware of the presence of God around us? And so Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And then we pick up in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so here's the exchange between Jesus and Peter that offers restoration. It's the first direct conversation they've had since the, the resurrection. And when you look at Peter's journey up to this moment, there's a lot of empathy for what he must be experiencing. You know, right before Jesus is arrested and executed, he tells Peter that, you know, you're going to be the foundation of this new community that's formed out of this movement. And so Peter emphatically announces that he's got Jesus' back to the end. Like he's even willing to die with him. But shortly after that, his fear gets the best of him, and he ends up denying Jesus the three times that he's confronted. And so he's probably feeling defeated, disillusioned, confused. And so the three times Peter is asked about his love for Jesus, Jesus is offering restoration and freedom from the three denials that he's holding with shame. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't explicitly offer compassion or forgiveness to Peter here, although I assume that's being offered because that's what Jesus embodies. And at the same time, there's an understanding of forgiveness and restoration that involves faithful action moving forward. As part of Peter's restoration and healing, Jesus is inviting him to practice ordinary love by feeding and tending his sheep, to care for the people Jesus cared for, to guide and protect the vulnerable and marginalized that Jesus engaged with. And so for us, as we form patterns toward a new way of life, we're reminded to practice love in the ordinary and mundane, not in the form of grand gestures or attention-seeking declarations, not in front of a crowd for publicity's sake, but it's in the context of the personal and the intimate, like what Jesus is doing with Peter here, or like when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. You know, up to this point, Peter was all about grand gestures, big public statements. And Jesus is simply reminding him to be faithful in the ordinary practice of love. The repetitive nature of Jesus asking Peter three times to care for his sheep, that underscores the importance of just being faithful in the ordinary over time, just to continue to chip away at it over the long haul. You know, in the past couple of years, there's been some disturbing and heartbreaking news stories about mass graves uh, with children being discovered throughout Canada. Uh, at residential schools that were set up in the late 1800s. And these schools would take indigenous children away from their families and their homes, and they would force assimilation by attempting to wipe out their culture, their language, their heritage. And many churches were directly involved in establishing these schools. And so I read an interesting account of what happened back in 1984, when Alberta Billy, who was an Aboriginal member of the United Church of Canada, she told the Executive General Council that it was time for the church to apologize to the native peoples of Canada for what they did to them in these residential schools. And so the church did issue a public apology in 1986, but the native elders waited two years before responding. And when they did, 
they responded by simply acknowledging it, not even accepting it. One of the native elders explained this. He said, in the native way, apologies are not accepted. They are acknowledged. An apology must be lived out. And the church is being asked to live out its real apology. And so they gathered a mound of stones on the spot where the apology was given. And over the years, stones were added to that pile to represent specific actions that were being taken to bring restoration between the church and the native peoples. And then on the 20th anniversary of that apology, it was read again on the same spot with more stones being added to that mound. And for me, I found this to be a beautiful image and reminder to practice ordinary love over the long haul. It's not about holding huge press conferences or making viral statements, but it's doing the hard and mostly unseen work of feeding and tending sheep over time. It's adding one small stone at a time to slowly build toward restoration and healing. And as we see with Peter, Jesus is saying, don't just make statements and declarations of love and restoration. Instead, continually do the ordinary act of feeding and tending to the vulnerable again and again and again. And for us, how do, how do we envision practicing love in the ordinary? How do we faithfully contribute over time to the restoration and healing of those who are hurting and marginalized. You know, maybe a small practical opportunity is just to participate this Saturday with the the plant and bake sale. It's our small attempt to raise support for these organizations who are working directly with those who are being impacted by the war in Ukraine, by our siblings in the trans community who are impacted by our state's legislation. But what does our version of feeding and tending to the vulnerable look like? And so Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then we close in verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus is inviting Peter to follow him into death and resurrection, which was the ultimate embodiment of nonviolence. The kind of death Jesus was foreshadowing for Peter was one where he would receive violence in the same way that Jesus did. And based on tradition, Peter does end up a martyr. He was crucified in Rome years later. And I'm sure Peter wrestled a lot with taking up this path of nonviolence, not wanting to go there. The same kind of wrestling that Jesus did in the garden before his own journey to the cross. And for us, as we form patterns towards a new way of life, we're also invited to wrestle with the tension of what it really means to follow the nonviolent path of Christ. And when you look at Peter's journey, 
and experienced up to this point. Clearly, Peter had not attended one of our nonviolent communication workshops. He had an incident where he cut off someone's ear who was trying to arrest Jesus. Another time, a couple of other disciples suggested they should call down fire from heaven to destroy a city that didn't welcome Jesus. And so the default pattern to respond with violence was embedded in Peter and those around him. It wasn't natural to shift to a nonviolent path. You know, last month, I, I caught a screening of a documentary that was really difficult to watch. Uh, it's called Revolution of Our Times. And it's about the protests that took place um, in Hong Kong back in 2019. And I would show you the trailer, but even that is really difficult to watch. Uh, it happened in response to China trying to pass an extradition law where they could essentially extradite any Hong Kong citizen back to China if they felt like they were a threat to the government. And this was extremely controversial because Hong Kong had been a British colony up until 1997 when it was returned back to China. But Hong Kong was guaranteed separate legal and economic systems. Right? They were operating under the one country, two systems framework. And so Hong Kongers took to the streets in nonviolent protest for months. At one point, they had two million people out on the streets on one day. But as time went on, things got more tense and more violent. Police were extremely brutal to these protesters, many who were elderly and children. The police would allow gang members to violently attack protesters and not get in their way. And throughout the film, you hear from the different voices leading these protest movements how they struggle and wrestle with the seeming ineffectiveness of nonviolence. Some said that they needed to start retaliating, while others kept insisting that retaliating with violence against these people, should, that should be a line we don't cross, because it only validates the violence being done to them. You know, both of my parents were born in Hong Kong before they immigrated here to, to, for college. And most of my life, I would visit Hong Kong every couple of years. And so seeing this city and the people under siege and the violence towards these protesters was, was a lot to process. I mean, this was happening in one of the most technologically and economically advanced cities in Asia. And what came up for me was a lot of anger. So much anger, I was having a visceral reaction in that theater, and I didn't know what to do with all of it. I mean, there was so much rage just boiling up where I found myself more and more aligned with the voices that were calling for retaliation because they were brutally attacking these protesters, and it seemed hopeless, and no one was protecting the innocent. And yet Jesus was essentially modeling for us what it means to break the cycle of violence. His vision of ending the cycle of violence was to receive and absorb the full brunt of humanity's violence, even if it meant his own death. And I think we're invited to actually sit in that tension of what a nonviolent path really means for us. That if the path of nonviolence takes us to our own version of death and loss, whatever that might look like, are we willing to consent to that? And that's the last thing that Jesus offers Peter to reflect on and wrestle with. That's what it means to follow him.
And so, Vox, as we move through this Easter season and consider the invitation to a new way of life, my hope for us is that we would make space and find ways to disrupt our default patterns so that we can be intentional and faithful in how we practice love in ordinary ways. That we can be aware of and wrestle with the life that Jesus modeled for us and invites us to follow. So let me close with this prayer by St. Brendan. Help me to journey beyond the familiar and into the unknown. Give me the faith to leave old ways and break fresh ground with you. Christ of the mysteries, I trust you to be stronger than each storm within me. I will trust in the darkness and know that my times, even now, are in your hand. Tune my spirit to the music of heaven and somehow make my obedience count for you. And so we ask all this in the love of God, our creator, the nonviolence of Christ, and the disruption of the spirit. Amen.